Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 214, recorded live on Sunday, December 14th, 2014. Lots of 14s in there. I'm Scott, and with me on the podcast this week is Rob. Yay. Yay. Uh, we record live every other week, uh, usually on Sunday afternoons. Watch the Mintcast website or the Mintcast community on Google Plus for the schedule. The live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. And we're in the Mintcast channel on the SpotChat IRC server, irc.spotchat.org, and on the Freenode server at irc.freenode.net. So we had some pre-show music this week, Say uh, La Vie by Nada, Not Quite connected by Josh Woodward and Lightning by Tamara Laurel. So, gee, some new new picks there, Rob, huh? Well, these ones have been around for a little bit now, so um, I, it's getting near about time to rotate them out, I think. But uh, I don't know. I kind of like uh, kind of like the music. Good. Yeah, I got a brief listen as you cut us into the stream, so that uh, I should be listening to the pre-show music because. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, ah, and Bill, Bill in the IRC ports out that it's the 14th hour in Texas, at least anyway, as well. So it's the 14th hour of the 14th day of the month of the 14th year of the century. Yeah, and yesterday was the was uh, here in the states at least the way we do the dates was 12, uh, 12, 13, 14. Last time this century that the day month uh, or that the month day year order will be sequential digits like that. Yeah. And there was a child born in Cleveland at 10:11 yesterday. Ah, cur- of course. So, yeah, very good. Well done. Yeah. Well done. So there you are. So for all you numerologists out there. Yeah, so beyond that nothing happened in history cuz we don't have any here in the show <laughs> we notes. Have no idea what the history was. So nothing happened in history yeah. on this day. Yeah. Clearly nothing in the last fortnight that uh, yeah. has been a worthy of note. So it's been uh, been a little while since uh, we've worked together. Uh, it has. How you yeah. been? What you been up to? Let's see. What have I been up to? Well, uh, let's see. Last week we did the seventeen point one look. Was that last time on the? It was. Yep. Yeah. So I've been tinkering a little bit with that. I um, went in, and uh, I don't think I've got this anywhere in the the show. So I'll tell you the story now. I went into and because we had talked about. Uh, kernel versions yes so that oh yeah there's that schmanky new thing in the update manager now i guess it's been there for a while it's not that new i'm just getting around to finding it but uh where you can go look at what kernels are there and then tell it a little different kernel yep so i thought oh yeah that sounds like a lot of fun let me do that so i went in and went looking for the um let me me think a minute the 3.16 kernel is the highest numbered one that was in there at the time I was looking at it. So I thought, yeah, okay, let me try that one because it's probably okay. So I went through the process of clicking on it and installing it and stuff. And uh, what I had expected was going to happen was when I um, restart the machine, um, I would have another item on my grub menu that said boot into this kernel as well and generally what it does it leaves the old kernel there and then the new one so you can pick which one you want so i happily rebooted nope nothing there same boot screen as was there before so i'm fiddling and fooling around trying to figure out okay well what stupid thing did i do wrong um and this is on my uh, studio laptop that i'm doing this uh and so it's already dual booting so i'm dual booting mint 13 which is what's running at the moment uh with all of the 
the uh, KX Studio tools and um, 17.1 uh, is the other thing that's dual booting. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, ah, uh, you know, I bet I know what happened. I bet Mint 17 didn't do the right thing to Grub to get it to show up on the the Grub screen. So I thought, oh yeah, I gotta go. So I went back and looked it up and. Because, uh, you know, we did that episode, that I, so we're supposed to know how this works. Yep. But uh, anyway, I went back and ran Update Grub, and sure enough, it chunks through it. And uh, let me think what happened. It saw it in the Update Grub. I reboot. It's not there. So I got fiddling and fooling around some more. So I thought, oh, oh, I know what it is. It's a different version of Grub in... Mint 13, and that's the baseline guy for this box. He's he's a Mint 13 box, and by the way, I'm dual booting Mint 17 on it. So I thought, oh, maybe I got to do this over on the Mint 13 side. So I go over to the Mint 13 side and boot it up, and I ran Update Grub over there, and you know, it just crunches through it. Um, it didn't seem to find it, though, in the messages that came up. It just found, yeah, okay, there's a, a Mint 17 instance over there. And so I thought, oh, well, that didn't work. So I reboot. Oh, nope, there it is. So something about the difference in versions. Mint 13 was Grub 1.99. Mint 17 is Grub 2 point something, I think. Um, and so, it's, but as soon as I went back and did the update Grub over on the Mint 13 booted into the Mint 13 session, everything worked right. So I'm still not quite exactly clear what happened on the Mint 17 side and why that didn't work. I would have guessed that Update Grub is looking at the same place on both systems, but apparently it's not, and so I had to run it on the Mint 13 side. Well, there you go. So... It's a mystery of grub. It's a grub mystery. So that's your favorite kind, and and Bill's favorite kind as well. Yeah, I know Bill loves um, uh, grub. He, he's a real fan uh, of the the whole system. I think he likes the newer one better, though, from what I remember. But uh, anyway, yeah, Min thirteen controls the MBR, points to itself. Uh, it was able though to find the mints the two both kernels on Mint seventeen. Uh, so, yeah, Grub, just another bug. <laughs> Thank you, Sergeant McBear. I like that. That's good, yeah. So what about you? What have you been up to since last we uh, we crossed microphones, as it were? Well, you we were talking a little bit about in the pre-show. Um, work has gone crazy and just busy as heck with that. And um, I've been running all over the country, was out in Utah, was up in uh, our Richmond office, was up in our... Waltham, Massachusetts office, um, and finally uh, got home last week and hoping to just sit one place until next month and uh, actually, uh, you know, just go into my regular office and, and have that routine. But um, at the same time, I've got a bunch of stuff that's coming up and some big projects uh, that I'm involved in. And so that's, uh, it's good to be busy, uh, but it does make it hectic. And then, uh, you know, with stuff going on this time of year, it uh, just adds to it. So there's, just a lot. I, I think we're saying, you know, I was I was blowing leaves around the the yard yesterday, thinking that I should be doing something else. You know, I should be doing some work or something. And uh, so um, busy, busy, busy. Feeling guilty. Uh -huh. Feeling a little uh -huh. guilty. I did have the opportunity to um, uh, set my wife up. My wife's uh, Sony Bio um, laptop running Windows Seven. 
basically breathed its last. Uh, it'll probably boot right now, but it's um, it's got video problems. Uh, you have to keep moving the screen around to get it to actually display properly, and it's slower than I'll get out. It literally takes about five minutes to get to a desktop. Uh, so um, she was. I, I started feeling extremely guilty for not doing anything for her, so I actually built her a, a 17.1 uh, Mate build on an old um, T60 uh, Lenovo, and she loves it. Um, she's actually been able to operate with it without um, giving me a hard time or asking me for anything. And uh, she, Excellent. She's just doing her thing. She's using um, a podcatcher, um, G Potter, uh, to do her yep. podcast. I, I set her up with a bunch of subscri- subscriptions in there, and that's working away. So, so that was that's really nice to have her uh, up and running that. The interesting thing for me personally is that um, I, I sort of changed um, organizations inside of my organization where you were, uh, our company is a bunch of different companies that have been uh, acquired over a period of time. And then the parent company is, is very similar, has a bunch of different companies. Well, I'm actually working with the parent company now, reporting, to, cool. pe- reporting to people in the parent company. Uh, they set me up with a Mac. So, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm working on a Mac now. Um, I am probably going to see if I can dual boot this thing. I've been reading the tutorials. It's, it's only got a 128 gig drive, so it doesn't have a ton of mm-hmm. space. But um, it, it is really light. It's great in that sense. The display is beautiful. It's um, a solid state drive? Uh, yeah. It's the 120. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the 13.3 yeah. Retina display Mac, MacBook yeah. Pro. So yeah. um, actually really nice. Um, great on battery. Uh, and you can put mint on these things. So I've been reading the tutorials and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give that a shot. I haven't done it yet cause I had to get myself established, but, uh, right. You don't want to get fired your first little while. No, you don't want to get, you don't, that's true. You absolutely don't. So, um, but yeah, so it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to, to be, um, you know, I, I still have all my issues. It's funny when you start looking at Mac apps, yep. there are Mac apps that, um, there's a password, it's a, password one or something like this or it's just a password manager it's yep. it's 50 bucks in the mac store <laughs> 50 dollars they have text editors that are 49 39 text editors and it's like sure you can get free text editors they're out there but it's i guess the appetite people people are willing to to pay for these things Welcome to the Mac ecosystem where everybody has money and nobody has brains. You know, I got I got eased into it through the iPad and the iPhone and I had a certain threshold that I wouldn't pay above for for apps. So I was willing to pay I'd pay 3.99 if I if I thought this app was going to help me or I thought I was it was going to say 99 cents. 90, yeah, a lot of them were 99 cents or something like that. But um the jump to the to the Mac to to um, to I, from iOS to OS ten in terms of the cost of the apps I sticker shock. So, yeah. so well, that's my favorite saying about the the Apple ecosystem, right? You can get better, but you can't pay more. No, you can't. That's for sure. That's for <laughs> sure. So, so I have a solution for your uh, your wife's laptop low uh, woes. Uh, and we're gonna. It's it's in our uh, announcements at the end. If you hurry, uh, you can run over to the uh, Indiegogo campaign on Reglu and one of the perks up there. I think they've still got one left. Is uh, well, there's a couple of them. One of them is an IBM Core i7. Saw that. The other one though is a MacBook. Yep, I saw that. So you you can get on there and just make a little donation to Reglu and and pick yourself up a new uh, new notebook. Yep. 
I saw that. <laughs> so anyways, we'll touch again on that in the announcements, that whole effort there uh, at Reglu. But before we do that, we're actually going to be talking about our Linux Mint Christmas wish list. But before we do that, we're actually going to get into a little bit of news. So there is an absolute boatload of Mint news this time. Um, as I suppose you might expect, um, af right after 17.1 pushes out. But there's a bunch of stuff. So the, we're kicking off with uh, an article on ZDNet by uh, Stephen J. Von Nichols uh, claiming the best Linux desktop of 2014 is, drumroll please, Linux Mint 17.1. So... Uh, and he says, uh, uh, I really like Linux Mint as a desktop for years. Uh, now, with the latest version, Linux Mint 17.1, Rebecca, I think I may love Mint. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, I knew that he liked, uh, well, I knew he was a Linux guy, but uh, and I knew he used Mint. Anyway, so um, his comment, the thing that has pushed him over the edge, apparently, is he says, uh, that's because Mint has finally corrected its one shortcoming. Well, there goes our episode, right? Mm. Um, one shortcoming, the inability to easily upgrade from one version to another. Yes, you could move, pro move from one edition to the newest one before, but it wasn't easy or transparent. Uh, as Mint proclaims, until 2016, future versions of Linux Mint will use the same package bases as Mint at 17.1, making it trivial for people to upgrade. Uh, so he goes on and talks a little bit more about uh, the distro in general. Um, and, you know, he talks about installing it and which kernel is in there and, and the software that's there. It does a fairly reasonable, uh, I should, well, that sounds more negative than I meant to be. It does a good review of what it is uh, and, you know, what's available. Talks about Cinnamon, talks about Mate. He likes Cinnamon better. Um, and I guess um, I'm divided on that. I don't know whether I don't know which one I like better. I like I use them both, but uh, anyway, I thought it was a good article and the best Linux desktop of 2014. Like, what's not to like about an article like that? Well, I'll tell you what's not. <laughs> there's uh -oh. there's a guy named Jim Lynch who actually wrote an article uh, challenging that sort of challenging that idea, and he said, you know, is Linux Mint 17.1 really the best desktop of 2014? And and he makes a decent point in his article. He's basically talking about the fact that um, Linux users have a wide variety of use cases, and um, it's really hard to say what is actually the best desktop. And, and so it's fairly it's a fairly you know, it's sort of clickbait on the um, on the headline, but it's a fairly well written article in the sense that he just talks about the fact that that there's you know there's all sorts of different types of Linux out there and all sorts of different types of desktops now, and um, and so he uh, just sort of making the point that it's really hard to to say which one is the absolute best. Now, Stevie J. Von Nichols is not alone in sort of calling Mint seventeen point one perhaps the best distribution that's ever come out of the Linux world. So there's, wow. there's some other articles out there. Now it's interesting because in the, in the, uh, in the comments for this particular article that Jim Lynch wrote, uh, there's a guy that you may recall, uh, a gentleman named Gary Newell, who, uh, who comes out and says that, uh, he sort of agrees that, uh, that, that in fact, Mint might not be the best, uh, 
the best uh, desktop out there. He says, uh, now I wouldn't, uh, I would still say that Unity isn't everybody's cup of tea, but I think it is head and shoulders above the Mate desktop. I should- this guy, Gary Newell, seems to live in a parallel universe where Linux Mint does not exist. Wait, wait, I thought I thought uh, Joe wasn't going to be able to make it today. I, what, is he? Are you channeling Joe out of the ether? Or I what? think he just chimed in for that one. <laughs> so, this guy, Gary Newell, goes on to say, I share a similar view with Cinnamon. It is a really nice desktop and it works well, but am I more productive using Cinnamon over Unity? I don't think so. Well, you know, and again, this is... Uh, it sort of goes back to that point that Jim was making that, you know, everybody's got different use cases. Every Because personally, you know, you've heard me rail against Unity being an unholy mess and, and the fact yeah. that I can't use it and I'm totally unproductive with it. So obviously this guy, Gary Newell, and I are, are on opposite sides of the spectrum. Right. And as we uh, discussed after we had done that, that episode that I played the clip from, um, this is not to cast aspersions in, in any way on Gary. Um, you know, it, this is a, an opinion-related thing, and of course, we're we're poking at it because of uh, the way that we treated his article when he when he did the post. So uh, he he's a smart guy and and does a lot of good stuff for for Linux. So lest we uh, we get the world upset by uh, making you feel like we're picking on Gary, we're really not. We're poking fun at us as much as anything, I think. Yep. And that Joe guy. Who couldn't be here today? Anyway, so uh, I don't know. Um, I I went ahead and did the upgrade uh, because I had installed 17 uh, in a couple of places, and so I thought, oh yeah, okay, I'll go do that uh, that upgrade. And I did uh, a couple. I did one um, bare metal install, and I did uh, another one. I I just ran the upgrade after it came out, and so the the well, as soon as the uh, post came out on the, the Mint uh, website saying, okay, here's how you do it. Um, it's pretty easy. You just click on the update manager and it gives you a new version of Mint update and it does that. And then you say system upgrade, edit, upgrade to Linux Mint 17.1 Rebecca, follow the instructions on the screen boom way it goes just like nobody's business it was uh and for me it worked really well you know it just uh clicked along once the upgrade was done you reboot it and boom there you go you were in uh, mint 17.1 so i did it on my studio box and that's a cinnamon box uh, moving from cinnamon mint 17 cinnamon to 17.1 cinnamon and it worked uh, great. I followed the the uh, uh, instructions exactamundoly. Um, now it didn't. The reason I got into this kernel thing is it doesn't change the kernel. It does, there's a bunch of stuff that it doesn't do. Yeah, um, and they and they talk specifically about that. Yeah. If you read, if you read the, we'll have a link to the blog post. You can also read the release notes and some other pieces, and yep. and you'll it'll tell you specifically what it does not touch. Some of the things that it doesn't do that you can then go and do, such as download the old um, wallpapers. It doesn't necessarily do that because it's a fairly right. sizable download, as you mentioned, right. the, the kernel. But there's mechanisms for upgrading your kernel and. Uh, and doing all that, and actually, I did a bunch of tinkering around with the kernel upgrade stuff, and that that actually does work, with the exception of, of what I talked about in, early on. But I expect if you know if you weren't dual booting and you were just running a generic kind of um, Mint install, 
that that uh, that kernel upgrade would would work or update would work just the way that it's supposed to. So. So, Scott, you had a slightly different um, take on this whole ease of upgrade business. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about that uh, a little later in the show. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, one other piece of news that came out of the Mint world um, is that the OEM images are available for 17.1. As you may recall, OEM images are for computer vendors and manufacturers. They're also for uh, if you're providing support for someone. They allow um, Linux Mint to be pre-installed on a machine, which is then used by another person than the one who performed the installation. So if you were in this season of giving, if you were to be giving someone a machine that had Linux Mint on it, you would be able to do that. You can use the OEM image, and when they boot it up for the first time, it walks them through a script that um, sets them up, and and it's not unlike uh, when you first purchase a a Mac or a PC uh, and bring it home for the first time, and you have to start it up and walk through some, uh, you know, you create system accounts and stuff like that. So uh, they can choose their username, password, keyboard, layout, and locale. So uh, those are out right now. Um, I think they're only for, again, for um, Monte and Cinnamon as we're waiting. Yeah, now, have, have you ever done that? I've never yes. actually built a machine like that. Yeah, I think I, I can't recall if I actually did one to give away or if I did one uh, just to see what how they played out in a, in a uh, virtual box. Yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to try. Um, I've not really ever built a machine and then just given it to somebody and let them kind of do whatever if I was sort of built it for them and then kind of walk them through getting it set up and that sort of stuff so yeah yeah that this is a nice uh nice way if you're kind of putting a machine together that you're not going to actually be able to sit with the person when they turn it on the first time yep yep Yep. And then also uh, in the Mint world, we got the monthly news for the month of November. And there were a couple nuggets in there. There always are. Um, it's it's good to read through. Um, some of it we already knew um, that the release of 17.1, uh, Mate and Cinnamon, were out. And they've been very well received, as we've mentioned earlier. If you read uh, the reviews across the board, uh, very well received. Um, and uh, there's a note here that they're expecting the XFC and KDE releases to be um, uh, out soon. The release candidates will probably be available um, probably about the time that uh, this comes out in the uh, on our uh, uh, subscription form. So later this week we should see those. Um, they're pretty sure that, that there's that bugs that remain are only minor and that they're going to pass QA probably fairly easily. So it, it's going to be questionable if they make it out before the holidays or, or they're going to be early January. As you guys probably recall, the, traditionally in the traditional development model where they were following uh, Ubuntu's releases, they would always come out in January. We would, Usually, Rob and I were talking before the show, our, our first episode of the last two or three years has, has always been the KDE and XFCE reviews. And uh, so it seems like we might see them earlier this year than we have in the past. Yeah, that'd be great because I've got, well, I don't know, I'm, I've am i settled in now to this, and this happens to me every year. I settle into the Mate release because it comes out earlier, and then the XFC comes out, and we do the episode, and Joe gets all wound up about it, and I end up switching over to XFC, and then it's months before I get back to, to Mate <laughs> again. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm such a, uh, I don't know, peer pressure, or just kind of go with whatever the, the flow is, and... It's trying something uh, new. Trying something yep, new. Just try something new. So, so the um, yep. 
so the final piece in here in, uh, in the monthly news was the, this note that the decision was made to use GTK 3.14 in LMDE2 Betsy, and that's their that's the Mint um, code name for, and that's going to be the same version as in Debian Jesse. The decision to switch to System D or to continue to use SysV in it was not taken yet. So it's still out there. It's still out there. So I guess um, I haven't thought about LMD in a little while. I guess they're still sitting waiting on Debian. It would appear so. Yeah. The, so nothing's really going to happen until Debian pushes Jesse out. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. And I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I read an article today that said that System D was going to be the default in Ubuntu 15.04. So, mm. so I think the Mint team. Well, obviously they're going to continue with the with the base of uh, 14.04. So they won't have right. to make that decision until uh, they go to the next LTS. So yeah, which um, let me think. That's 16.04. 16.04. And so they'll call that probably Mint 18, I'm guessing, is what they're going to do. If they keep with the 17 as the number for this LTS, and then I presume that would be Mint 18. And then they'll have to make a decision about whether they're... Well, I guess, no, they'll have to address it. It won't likely be a decision that they're able to make one way or the other. Yeah, and by that time we'll know if, if um, System D is going to take over the, the world and... Yeah, um, we got some good feedback on that. Good comments. Yeah, end, end of the world as we know it, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Fun and games. All right, so that's about the extent of the news out of the Mint world. Yeah, busy week, busy week. So uh, general Linux news then. Um, I found an article up on PC World that I thought, well, okay, this is, is this link baiting or what is this? Anyway, this guy pops up and says, your Linux PC isn't as secure as you think it is. <laughs> um, of course, what he's talking about is uh, it's been an apocalyptic year, he says, for Linux security. He's talking about, well, shell shock and um, all of the other stuff um, that's been floating around and has popped up that affects the affects Linux boxes. Um, he says, uh, security researchers have known about a piece of malware called Turla, Snake, or Ouroboros for years. An extremely sophisticated piece of government-sponsored malware appears to be Russian in origin, and as usual, it was Windows malware. But this week, Kaspersky unveiled it and found a Linux version of Turla. It's been silently injecting or infecting Linux systems for years. And I'm thinking, really? That it's been sitting there forever? And and really, I don't I never hear about that. Yeah, okay, so it got got patched and stuff um, when it got announced. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about Xorg being riddled with security problems. Oh, but we already knew years. that. Yeah. yeah, well, so that's, yeah. And, it, and of course, the X people say, uh, well, it's worse than it looks. So who knows? So he claims, oh, okay, it's, don't worry about this, though. Wayland and Mir are going to save us. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I'll... Uh, 
Yeah, let me know how that works out for you. Anyway, the he goes on and on and on and talks about uh, all of the stuff. You know, own cloud is you know they the guy who was keeping the own cloud uh, distro up to date decided or package up to date in Ubuntu decided he wasn't going to do it anymore and so it hasn't been updated and so the security holes in it and and you know, shell shock was a big deal and and so then he says well the Linux security system is broken but so is everything else and I I laughed at that when I read it I thought well wait a minute make up your mind is this good or bad or what's going on and so what he says is that you know basically Linux, he's quick to point out, even at the beginning of the article, that Linux has actually got a better security model than either Windows or OS X. Um, and so, well, all right. Um, that's maybe probably true. And we have said in the past that, you know, we need to be careful in the Linux world about just claiming, oh, it's invulnerable, it's impenetrable. You know, you can't break into a Linux system. They're just, um, I don't even run a virus scanner on mine. You know, you don't need it. There are no Linux viruses. When, of course, that's not true. There are. Um, we're just comfortable being a uh, uh, not enough large, not large, large enough target to really make the effort worthwhile, particularly. Um, so, you know, like all those Windows and Mac systems, the author says out there, your Linux system is full of security holes. We just haven't found them all yet. Be humble when talking about Linux security, or you may find yourself with egg on your face when the next Shellshock bugs blows up. So, I don't know. Um, I thought it was an interesting article because um, it sort of echoes um, what I've been thinking about this in, you know, ever since we started hearing about all these um, um, security exploits, and that is that, you know, Linux is at its core has a better security model than Windows does by a long shot. Uh, although with some work, uh, I think you can make a Windows box um, as secure to use as a Linux box is. And if you don't, you're not careful, um, you can probably open up a Linux box to be as vulnerable as a Windows box is. Perhaps not, but uh, uh, I expect some clever person could figure out um, how to do that. Uh, I think the main difference, um, the, and I'm not sure that I agree with the thesis of his article, but the main difference between the two is that Linux tends to be out of the box set up in a somewhat more secure configuration than your typical Windows box is when it's first installed. That's really where we go, um, I think, on the security thing. You know, most Windows boxes, you install Windows, you end up essentially logging in as the root user, and that's how you use the machine. That's not a good idea. Agreed. And whereas, you know, Linux, at least you're not logged in as the root user. Although this Turla thing, you don't, it doesn't even need you, uh, it doesn't even need root access. Uh, it just runs as a regular user account, so... Um, that was kind of an interesting angle, but anyway, don't go around bragging about how great your, uh, how secure your Linux box is because you're going to get scuppered sooner or later. Yeah. That whole article sort of struck me as just a rehash of things that we already knew. There, yeah. There's no, there's no new information in there. Turla actually is, a was, a, you know, the 
the subject of the week, but there's no new information in there otherwise. So I'm yep. not really surprised, um, you know, or, you know, enlightened by that article, I must say. All right, let's change directions. Um, there's been a big release that came out in the last week, and that's Fedora 21. I heard something about that. Yeah. That's that Red Hat release. It's that Red Hat release. Yeah. And, you know, it took them a year to do it, but it is a hugely ambitious release that they came out with. Uh, they have done quite a number of things here. One, they've split the release up into three uh, different um, three different versions. You can get the you can get cloud, you can get server, or you can get workstation. And each one of those, they have some different things that they've done. Uh, the cloud version is actually for use in uh, sort of cl cloud computing, so like AWS or um, uh, Fedora containers. It allows you to create Fedora containers in, in Amazon Web Services or Amazon Machine Images. Um, there's a bunch of other pieces there that, that lend itself to that and stripped down a bit, so it's about 25% smaller than their regular release. In server, they have a number of new um, management uh pieces they have a domain controller in there so they can actually do authentication to a uh, fedora 21 server it can actually offer centralized authentication and authorization um, and by storing a user group and host and other object data necessary to manage network security uh, and then it's got a couple other pieces they have a, a new uh, web-based user interface for configuring and managing servers called cockpit uh, a couple other things inside a workstation um, a couple small things but one of the big things is they do have wayland support in a, um, it's a, let's see, it's included as, as an experimental build allowing developers to test and integrate their applications with Wayland's new capabilities. So I think this is the first official release of Linux that has had Wayland in it, if I'm not mistaken, or at least one of the major ones. Yeah, I certainly haven't seen one, yeah. Yeah, so um, the other thing they've got is it comes in about Oh, at least five different flavors. It's kind of nuts. Um, there's an article that was written by um, uh, J.A. Watson, and he writes a lot of stuff for ZDNet uh, on the Linux side. And he actually installed five different versions. You got GNOME 3, you got KDE, and it's KDE 4.13. Let's see, it is 4.13.3. So pretty pretty current. Um, it's he's got Mate 1.8.1, uh, XFCE 4.10, and LXDE. So wow. he did five different installs, looked at them all. And the interesting thing is, if you read through uh, the article, he he's got um, they all have different applications, different package managers. Um, they're definitely these aren't just uh, slapped together with a different um, uh, different. Uh, um, you know, uh, different desktop environment, but same applications and same type of stuff. They actually, they position these things in, in different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. X, XFC and LXDE are really stripped down and uh, they have like, you know, Abbey Word and, and numeric, but not only that, they're, they're stripped down beyond that. I think there's no, um, there's no, uh, uh, Photo manager. There's no. There's a bunch of other things that aren't there that you can add later if you want. But you can also add, um, you know, minimal applications if that's if you want to keep that that small desktop. 
Um, one of the things he talks about is the fact that uh, the Mate version is super fast and uh, hmm. that it, you know, he's running on a box with uh, an SSD card uh, or SSD drive versus a, um, you know, spinning drive. But he does mention that, that Mate itself just boots up very quickly. So um, obviously a lot of work went into this. As you guys, you know, we spoke of a little bit. Um, they did... Uh, they did take. They did have to delay this this release, um, and it did take just about a year uh, for them to get it out. But um, obviously, uh, some people are really happy with it. The other thing that uh, that he talks about is um, uh, J. A. Watson. He also has a whole article on it. Is the the Anaconda installer? And you guys may recall we took a look at this thing and said, "Oh my goodness, it's a horror show." You yeah. know, what are they doing? What are they trying to accomplish here? This is the worst installer. Why'd they do this? He loves it. And and the the he he it must have come a little way since the last time we looked at it, which was probably Fedora eighteen, maybe yeah, nineteen. It's been a while since yeah. we looked at a Fedora release. Right? Maybe nineteen. I don't even know if I even installed twenty at any point. But um, they've obviously done a lot of work. Uh, if it's, in, I don't think anybody liked it at the time that it originally came out. So after reading this article, it was my intention to go out and take a look at this. I haven't had a time to do to do that yet, but. Um, uh, I think it's, you know, being that this is, you know, probably the, it, it, we've talked about the different things that have come out in Fedora and why Fedora has relevance. Um, you know, that typically, and, and this is even the article that Stevie uh, J. Von Nichols wrote was that, he, welcome to the future of Linux, because Fedora typically, things you find in Fedora typically make their way, and SystemD is a great example, Pulse Audio, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of different ones that have all started in Fedora and eventually made their way into other uh, distros. So uh, um, the intention is to get a look at this thing and, and see, what, uh, see what's out there, maybe spend a little time with it. Uh, it's been a long time since I've actually spent time outside of the Debian world, so, um, but uh, that's it, it's out there. It, it, in fact, it came out on I think on the ninth, and demand was so steep that um, the packages the the downloads were unavailable for some time. I think I don't know if it crashed their servers or if it was almost like a DDoS because so many people were going to get it. But we're uh, trying to get it. Wow. Yeah, you can get it now. So if it's something you're interested in, go check it out. Well, there's got to be a huge installed base of uh, you know Red Hat folks who are running Fedora um, as a kind of desktop or as an off off machine without the licenses you would think so yeah that's um, it's not so and it's been a while since there was a, something brand new so but i you know well you know i'm a bit surprised that it knocked the machines down though because they would have known that there would be a huge demand for it i would have thought but who knows who yeah. knows hmm. Interesting. All right, and in uh, in another in an entirely different direction, uh, we haven't talked in a while about uh, sort of the the open source march and and uh, the open open uh, standards march through the public sector worldwide. And I came across an article that was in uh, Computer World UK uh, about just that about uh, both the uh, the province. Well, what are they calling it? The Indian state of Kerala. Um, has actually ordered all of its public sector agencies that were using Windows XP to migrate to open source operating systems by the 30th of June. And, yeah. uh, you know, and so you think, uh, well, how many s systems are there? It doesn't really say in the article, and I don't know how big Kerala is, but um, one of the things that we're seeing more and more is, in fact, when with this uh, 
with the uh, end of support for Windows XP and the upcoming end of support for Server 2003, uh, that a lot of people are moving away from uh, the proprietary. They're using this as an opportunity to get out of the proprietary uh, headlock that that Microsoft puts in. The other big uh, mention in the public sector was actually the uh, German city of Leipzig which is switching to using uh, open source suites of office productivity tools um, to, as a start of a, like a five-year plan. So they are, they're going to use um, LibreOffice and OpenOffice, and then solely they're going to move into uh, actually doing um, uh, Mozilla and uh, Firefox, and then eventually um, they're going to be installing um, full-blown uh, laptops across across the board and there's also a, um, the, the French are doing this as well in their uh, the French gendarmerie I probably pronounced that wrong gendarmerie yeah, yeah gendarmerie so so we're seeing this sort of um, again it's that movement that like, the, the it seems uh, you know that that again these they're realizing how much money can can be saved but they also in, in the article, they talk about the fact that that um, they're aware that in Leipzig that it's actually going to cost them uh, money to their, the exit costs associated with proprietary software are going to actually swallow the savings that they would see in the first five years of the of the program. So um, I think I think cities, particularly in Germany, are taking a look at Munich's experience and being able to. Uh, to be very realistic about their approach to moving to open source software and what it takes to do that and to get out of, in essence, the, the, the headlock that they were in um, with, with uh, proprietary software. Yeah, it's interesting that they've, they've identified the switching, switching away costs. You know, when you talk about switching costs, it's, it's often that you're looking at, oh, well, we're going to have to pay for new licenses and, and new this and new that. You don't actually often hear them talk about these switching away costs, um, you know, the, the exit costs yep. of, of getting away from these things. And, um, you know, that, that, that's, I guess a sensible thing if you're a, a software um, organization to build in, you know, penalties for moving away, like the cell phone companies have done to us. Well, I think yeah. you know we've talked about it that um, the you know the macros that you're going to have in in spreadsheets and um, you know just even even uh, updating versions of of Microsoft Office. If you come yep. from like Office 2003 and you want to go to Office 2010. You you're going to pay a price to do that because yep. um, you know they're they're not as compatible as they should be or you would think they would be and I think that you know recognizing that that you're going to pay to you know not just that in training costs in adoption costs you know there's some soft costs and there's some some hard costs there and I think that uh, taking those into consideration I think it's a more realistic approach to to these kind of migrations um, but it but it's interesting to see you know it's really being driven now. With you know, granted, XP went end of life. There are organizations and public sector uh, units that are paying for extended support for XP um, to keep to keep receiving uh, updates and such. But um, I think we're really seeing now organizations that have, have deferred that decision and deferred that decision. Will they go to Windows 8? Will it will it require all new hardware? What can they do? Um, we're starting to see more and more uh, sit, make the decision that maybe open source is the way to go. I wonder if um, using open source tools makes an organization kind of 
inherently more resistant to those lock-in, that lock-in effect. Um, if I wonder if you, you know, just the fact that you're using something that that moves a little bit more, that has more options or more choices around how you deploy it. If you if you get um, less kind of tied into um, one particular way of doing things. I don't know. I hadn't really thought much about it, but it just occurred to me as we were talking about, um, you know, how you using Microsoft tools, you get very embedded in the way that Microsoft tools work. You don't tend to look around so much, whereas maybe the Linux world lets you be a bit more fluid in terms of the way that you use the tools. And so you're not so locked in even to, because if you get locked into LibreOffice, then you haven't really improved the but situation. If but if you are using ODF, if you're using the o Open Document Foundation, you know, that standard, yep. then then you can take your data with you. You can take, and it should work in other tools if you, in fact, find that LibreOffice doesn't work for you. Yeah, I think it's the work processes that I was thinking more of that, you know, if you build your whole workflow around a particular tool, then you get locked into that tool. And yes. I wonder if if by using open source tools, because the tools you're you're more likely to switch from one tool to another in that environment that if in, inherently you you get less of your your day to day workflow embedded in the tool itself. And so you're in, you're less reliant on specific pieces of software. Could be a hidden advantage to uh, uh, to open source stuff. Yeah. So uh, speaking of getting locked in or locked out or something, anyway, um, in the odds and ends department this week is a, comes a story from CDNet. Uh, remarking on the fact that Microsoft and Barnes and Noble are dissolving the Nook marriage. I should have had a dirge ready to play here. It's unfortunate they they tried to make a go of it, but citing ir irreconcilable differences and no, no. Okay, so back to being serious. The joint venture then between Microsoft and Barnes and Noble, uh, which was originally designed to revive the Nook media business, is unraveling. So they announced. Uh, Oh, just a couple of weeks back that that Barnes & Noble was going to buy out um, Microsoft's share in Nook Media. Um, 62 million in cash and 2.7 million shares of Barnes & Noble. Hmm. Well, I wish my failures netted me $62 million in cash. Well... I don't, I don't know. What did they pay for it? $300 million. Oh, oops. Yeah. Just a couple of years ago. Just... Oh, well. You know, this... It, I, this uh, I thought was, is or I think is an interesting story because I I've always looked at Barnes and Noble and Nanook and thought you know you guys are just not gonna make it you know it's it's not happening for some reason and it's not that you know so Kindle the Amazon Kindle comes along and basically creates this. Um, handheld reader market there several years back. Now that I guess there were other uh, tools like this before, but the Kindle really kicked this whole thing off. And then Barnes and Noble comes up and and releases one. And you know I've got one of each, and and they're both about the same vintage. I got an old Kindle and I got an old Nook. The Kindle is head and shoulders more useful and a better selection of books than the Nook is. And it 
it has just stayed that way and and it's and I don't know what it is about the nook that has stopped it from really taking off because you would think okay we got Barnes and Noble they're a bookseller they know about how books work and you know they should have been able to make a go of this and they just have really not been um, been successful at all and so when Microsoft came along the idea was okay Microsoft big pockets they're gonna revitalize this whole business Microsoft wants um, you know an inroad into that business this this is all gonna be good it, it just never went anywhere you know yeah. it just it kind of fell apart now the article says well it's all about the CEO he just wants to be you know um, Sachin Adela, he's decided, oh, he's going to focus on, you know, cloud and mobile. And he looks at the Nook as being, yeah, I don't care. You know, let's just get rid of this thing. I don't want to be, I don't want to deal with it. Um, and maybe that's what's going on. But I wonder, you know, have has Amazon so tied up the ebook market that it's going to be the Kindle and then 47 million junk tablets? Yeah, and I really I think that's it. You know, it, people say that Borders went under because they didn't address ebooks properly, and they didn't they didn't get into that market. And they had that uh, they had some horrible uh, reader that was just yeah. rebranded. They bought it from somebody, and they just rebranded it. It was bad. Yeah, it was um, bad. And. Um, you know, Barnes and Nobles was given credit originally for their approach and, and the for the Nook, and, and some of the some of the Nooks aren't horrible pieces of hardware, but they really become not unlike the Kindle Fire. They're almost like, why would I buy this when I can buy an Android tablet that has full functionality? This is just a hamstrung Android tablet, yep. uh, or you know, why would I buy this when I can buy when I really want an iPad? And you know, it, it's as you read in the article there. Uh, Barnes and Nobles actually turned the hardware manufacturer. They got out of that whole business. Samsung actually creates the the tablets for the them. actual hardware for them. Yeah, and uh, you know their their year on year sales are off tremendously. They're just really suffering in that sense. When I read this, one of the things I read is you know is is Barnes and Nobles in trouble as as a brick and mortar retailer, and will we will they go the way of Borders as a result? I know we talked about. When this, when Microsoft made the original investment several years ago, we carried the story on on Mincast and talked about it and talked about some of our fears as to what Microsoft's intentions were and what they were going to do. Um, obviously, they didn't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then they that walked might be away. The best thing that happened, and then yeah. they walked away. So, I mean, if we can keep the uh, the rest of the Android marketplace um, fairly, you know fairly profitable and fairly well uh with with good saturation into the marketplace then i'm not you know i'm this is probably the best ending that we could have to this particular story yeah you know it's it's a little bit surprising in the sense that uh, barnes and noble really should have had a, a real advantage over amazon in this market space being a bookseller because one of the things that has always been fascinating about the nook is that um, you could go into any Barnes and Noble store and you could sit in the store and read any book you wanted for nothing. Um, you know, you could sit in there and, and yep. you didn't have to, you didn't have to buy the book just like you'd go in and pick up a real regular, you know, paper book. Um, you could just sit and read the book. And then it just always seemed to me that they ought to have been able to turn that into a strategy that would be winning somehow. Um, 
you know, Sergeant McBear says, uh, well, you know, you can also read Kindle books on your Galaxy Note 10.1. And you can. You can read them on your computer. You can, there is a Kindle app for everything. Yes, there is. The other killer thing that Amazon did that I don't think uh, Barnes & Noble ever really did was I can take library books out on my Kindle. And so, you know, I get on the the library site and and I I can go find a, a book that I want to borrow and it works just like a regular library. I just borrow it and I say, yep, I want to borrow the Kindle version and it just shows up on my Kindle and I sit and read the library book. Um, and I don't know... It the the Kindle just seems to be a a much more frictionless way of of reading ebooks. Nook, it just seems awkward and expensive every time I turn around, and and I don't, they've never really beat that, and I think that's what's what's hurting them more than anything else. Well, anyway, <laughs> let's, that's what I got to say about that. So so we're going to end on that unhappy note, and we're going to move on to something a little more happy. Uh, we're going to move on to the main topic which is our top 10 things we want from Linux Mint and the free and open source software world this Christmas. So I got to tell you, Rob, it's been a long time since I've actually made a Christmas wish list. <laughs> Are you one of these guys that just goes out and buys stuff? Um, yeah, or I realize I can't have it and I just move on, but just forget about it. Yeah. yeah. I know it's tough for the people around me to buy me, you know, to actually come up with gift ideas for me. So, um, but it's been a long time, but saying that we actually did went through the exercise and we're going to read off with explanation, our top 10 things we want from Linux mint and the free and open source software world this, and this Christmas. These are, these are not. I think in any really strong priority order, there's a general orderness to them, I suppose, in the one in the sense that the ones at the bottom are the are the ones at the bottom. But uh, the rest of them are all kind of just uh, stuff as they occurred to us. I think is a, a fair way to put it. So the first thing that I thought of though when I when we started talking about doing this was, uh, you know, if if there's one thing that I'm really, really looking for out of the the whole new approach that the Mint team is taking to Linux Mint. Um, that is that this this backports promise actually pays off. And you know we've talked about this a couple of times as we've talked about 17 and in the change to the LTS that this promise that we're going to see uh, backports of major apps into the 17.x series, and so we're not going to. It's going to be different and better than just running on a uh, on an LTS. And so that's, you know, my the first thing that I thought of was I want to see backports of major apps back into the 17 series. Um, so like uh, specifically, um, LibreOffice is one that is is going to be I think significant. Um, Mozilla and Chrome and such already are happening, so that doesn't really count. So it's probably it probably is the the LibreOffice one. It would be the big deal one for me. Yeah, I think this is critical to the success of the path that they're on. If they seventeen point one, as we mentioned, very well received, but fresh enough that it's not it, it it's not going to suffer from the stuff we're going to see 
next year, a year from now. So what does seventeen point three look like? Right. You know, and and what what do you, what's the age of those applications? How much are they missing in terms of feature set that I could get from a Fedora twenty two or you know something like that? Or an Ubuntu Mate, you know. Yep, fifteen ten. Or that's the the one that's going to be the telling one to compare against. Exactly, exactly. A year from now, so you know, you know what, and I think that that's going to be critical to the success of of this new path. So, yeah, that has to happen. I think it has to happen, and and my wish is that they're successful in in pulling it off. Yep, for sure. That that's going to be important. I think. Yep. So the second thing that this was the first one that I wrote in here is that. I'm, I wish for an affordable, workable Steam machine console. So we, we haven't talked about uh, the Steam, Steam or Steam machines in a while, uh, but we did talk about them a fair amount earlier this year. And, uh, we, you know, we saw the, the prototypes that came out. Uh, we saw, you know, we talked about the promise here of the Steam machine running on Linux and uh, being a console box that you, you can, uh, you know, replace your Xbox or your PS4 or, you know, anything that you hook up to your TV and, and uh, play games with. Well, some of those uh, did some of the uh, prototypes that we saw at, uh, and I think it was CES or somewhere that they showed yep, off. CES, yeah, yeah. They were uh, some of those were pretty expensive. I mean, running up into the thousands of dollars for for some of the top, the higher end uh, machines. And my hope is that that when these machines hit the market, and hopefully that's not going to be a whole lot longer till they do, that. There's going to be affordable offerings that can compete directly with the Xbox, uh, with the PS4 or the PS5 or whatever's coming next. You know, the Xbox Two or whatever the, you know, the next, yeah. whatever the next name is for the Xbox, um, and that uh, that they continue to, you know, I guess it's sort of a. Uh, I want a lot out of this. I want the graphics to blow away the the ones we've seen in the in the PS4 and the Xbox, but but I want the price to be competitive and I want I want to see success and and the reason I want to see that success is uh Steam and Valve really went all in uh for for Linux gaming and that you know for this if this is successful, then we will continue to see uh, the the overlap into the Linux world and into into Linux gaming, and if it's not successful, then that that cry that you know that we heard from uh, John Carmack um, about the fact that gaming will never be profitable or successful on Linux uh, will will come to pass. And so I want him to be wrong, and I want Gabe Newell to be right, and I want I want uh, <laughs> you know I want my Steam console machine. You know, there was one of these just released uh, not that long ago to kind of pan reviews was was what I saw because it's basically, you know, a Windows 8 box running uh, the Steam software sort of. Um, but it was really a lot still of, of Windows 8 under the hood and, and you had to deal with all of that stuff. So, you know, that the, the Steam console running Steam OS, that, that would be the wish, yeah. Yeah. That would be nice to have. Yeah, and that uh, led me right into the third thing on our list, which is that to see more AAA games on on Linux in the this Christmas and in the coming year. Native games, uh, native Linux. Yeah, so you don't need Steam. You don't need. You can just run them on Linux. Well, I wouldn't. I don't even mind using Steam as the distribution system. But yeah, that did that run on Linux. Either you know, it's you don't. It's rare that you go into Best Buy now, and I, I don't know how many people actually do that. Go into Best Buy and actually buy 
a shrink wrapped copy of, you know, Call of Duty or, um, you know, anything like that. It sort of turned into um, the the uber geek kind of person that wants to buy the hundred dollar copy. You know, those are the people that are paying more because they get a little figurine and a, a bumper sticker for the car and, and a, a mouse pad and stuff all bundled into these premium packages. Yeah. Yeah, and so from that point of view, Steam is is fine as a as a delivery mechanism. That's great, yep. but but just to have those AAA games, to have the Call of Duties, to have uh, the World of Warcrafts. I'm not a player of that game, but I I I would like to see those games, you know, come out and not you know what we we even there's news stories this week that um, uh, I think Bioshock uh, came is coming to Linux or it just got there um that's great yeah but that's a you know it's that's an older game let's get these an older game yeah. you know let's get these things out on release and i think that you know back to my my second wish for the steam machine console i think that's going to help drive that uh because people are going to be if people are building for the steam machine and for it to run on there it's going to be a small small potatoes to make that run on my my linux desktop yep yep i think that's true although you know, the thing that has always puzzled me a little bit is that uh, people will make the jump from uh, Windows to uh, OS X, and they'll release on OS X, and, you know, the step from OS X to Linux has got to be pretty small. That That's not that big a, you know, because you're already in a Unix-based em- environment. Yeah, you use an OpenGL, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I can't imagine that that, and, and I guess the belief is there just simply aren't enough users. That yeah. anybody who wants to run AAA games is going to run a Windows box to run them. Yeah, yeah. So number four on the wish list, and this is another one that I, that I had written in, uh, is for Linux to become a major player in the Internet of Things market, the IoT market, bringing standardization and simplicity. And so, who is the major player in this market now? I would have thought Linux already was this. You know, they're well. They're writing more standards right now, and um, I can tell you who's going to probably be the major player in in a year, and it's not going to be Linux. It's probably going to be iOS. Um, be, you know, the devices themselves will probably run Linux because you need a small embedded, uh, you know, operating system to make those things happen, and nothing lends itself to that as well as as the Linux kernel. But if you look at the market right now. Um, let's take a simple example, home automation, which is a big piece of, of IoT. It's crazy. There are so many different, it, it's almost hard to get a grip on where you want to be so that you don't get trampled in the standards, um, you know, and be on the wrong side of the VHS versus Betamax type of line that's going to that's gonna happen here. Um, so, for example, you have Wink, you have, uh, what's the other major player? You, you know who I'm, who I'm talking about. There's one other major sort of standard. People are trying to set up sort of the bridges that control yep. all your IoT devices. So, and typically, for if if people aren't aware, typical things that you're going to see are going to be uh, like a Nest thermostat, and there's others uh, that can be controlled uh, via the internet, via via some sort of controlling mechanism, some sort of bridge in your house. Uh, people do door locks, uh, outlets, lights, like you have the the Hue lights, um, drapes. People will do drapes and window shades, um, you know, and you can do other things like your toaster, literally your refrigerator. Um, you can have uh, uh, these things embedded in all these different places, and they can be controlled 
from your from your phone, from your Android phone, your iPhone, your iPad, your Android tablet. But right now there's there's the shakeout going on. Well, it's not even there. It's still building. And what's going to be the standard? Different people are trying to get in the market. Well, what Apple did this year is they built their, they put HomeKit into iOS 8. And uh, it created a framework that people could, developers could develop under. Well, we know that you know, one of the things that Apple has is this massive developer um, ecosystem. And uh, there's, I'm sure there are a bunch of people out there trying to develop uh, Apple iOS based apps and and uh, OS 10 based apps to to uh, to to handle this stuff. Really, what I'd love to see is is somebody come up with some nice Linux apps that you could use um, that that you could control this control things from. Set up different uh, you know timers and and different uh, uh, scheduled events and really sort of bring that to that. Uh, but, you know, even in writing this, I knew when you write in bringing standardization and simplicity <laughs> in relation to anything it, in the free and open source world, you, you know, it's, it's a contradiction in and of itself. Well, what we need is we need the arch guys to start working on this. That's yeah, who's yeah, going to yeah, do it. Yeah, exactly. Standardization it's, and simplicity. That's yes, what they're all about. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So I see Joe had one in here um, looking for uh, professional proprietary multimedia applications. Um, and he has expressed this before that, uh, you know, things like Photoshop and Pro Tools and Avid and, um, you know, he's a big user of stuff like that in, uh, uh, in his music. Um, and there are sort of equivalents, I guess, in in the Linux world, but they tend to be described as almost as good as X um, proprietary applications. So, um, yeah, it'd be nice to see more proprietary. You know, it would expand the the ecosystem, I guess, if if there were uh, for pay at least. Uh, applications that were had been written and were available on Linux. Yeah, and you know, honestly, it's a it's a tough ask because, as we're well aware, um, it becomes sort of more of a question of, geez, do I use this halfway decent one that I can get for free, or am I willing to pay, you know, substantial amounts of money for, say, Photoshop? Right, um, and. I think where this where this could be helpful is in terms of um, uh, enterprise adoption uh, of Linux. And when you can't run these tools on Linux in the enterprise, uh, people are they're immediately sort of hamstrung as to uh, or confined as to what operating system they can run. If you're going to run Photoshop, you're going to run Windows, or you're going to run Mac. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. So I added. Uh one in here, um, a wish list for me is that LMDE is kept up to date as much as possible with the main edition. Uh, and so I suppose this is linked to the backports question, but, uh, you know, I really think that as, um, you know, Ubuntu goes down one direction, along gets further and further down this unity path, and, you know, we really need... I think we need to keep LMDE alive and vibrant, and so I'm really hopeful that uh, that it gets a little more love than it has in the last little while. So, 
I think you're right too. And I, as we talked about Ubuntu going to System D and um, the the oncoming uh, maybe uh, implementation of Mirror and you know different pieces there, there's there's some decisions in the next couple of years that the Mint team is going to have to make and. We've always thought that LMDE might be the the fallback plan for that team. Now, it's been around for a while now and hasn't really taken up that role, but will it have to at some point? It hasn't needed to. I think that that's part of the problem is that, you know, the Mint team has done a really good job at isolating us from all of the shenanigans at, at Canonical. Um you know, you we really haven't. If you if you just lived in a mint only world and didn't look outside, you really haven't had to pay very much attention to all of the goings on over there. That, it's true. You know, mints just sort of perked along and has been working fine. Um, I worry that that canonical train is just going to come off the rails and and fall in the in the gorge here well, at and some Joe, point, you know, and then Joe's, we're going to be screwed. Joe's prediction that. They yeah. won't. They won't be releasing a uh, distribution in five years. Yeah, and so where you know Mint has to have another log to jump on, sort of thing, and so LMDE needs to be that, and but it hasn't been necessary, and so it's really hard to justify putting very much time and effort into it when you know we can just use a main edition; it works just fine. So hopefully, I, they keep it up to date. They figure out that they're going to work. You know, put as much work into it as they need to to keep it going and keep it as a viable addition. So that's my thought. Yep. Um, I'm still wishing for a version of Mumble Jack that works on Mint 17. <laughs> I really want, and I don't. I I know I can go get the sources and compile them and stuff, and that's the Linux promise. You know that that's how is a possibility. But the reality is I'm lazy and I really would like somebody else to just do that so that I could just download the binary. I know it's evil to want binaries, but I can't help myself. I just, I can't. I can't help myself. I want a binary. I'll just install it. Yeah. Anyway. I, then I, I can agree. get off this Mint 13 box. I agree with that wish. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, I went looking earlier this year and thought, well, you know, I'd just go buy a, a box that has Mint on it. You know, why don't I just go buy a new... I was looking at, you know, the studio boxes, I don't know, eight or nine years old now, I think. Maybe not that old, but it's it's getting old. I should really replace it. I want And so I'm going to go buy a computer. Okay, so you get on look at HP and Dell and all those guys, and, oh, yeah, they got lots of laptops. They're all running Windows 8. Or maybe you can find run one running Windows 7 if you really look around. But they're all Windows boxes that I'm going to have to nuke the operating system and then do my own install. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go look and buy one that has got Linux on it. You pay, I'm guessing, 20 to 50% premium to buy a laptop that has Linux on it. And it's because I think there isn't all the rest of the shovelware on there that, that's on a typical Windows box. And so there's nobody paying to have their their, their junk dumped on there. And so you've got to pay the whole cost of things. But still, there's something not right about this that I sh that it should cost me more money to buy a machine that doesn't have a Microsoft operating system um, than it costs to buy one that does. Um, so I'm I'm wishing for 
reasonably priced Linux laptops. Agreed. And so for my second to last wish, I was wishing for a mint upgrade path that actually works. Wait, wait, we've got one. You go from 17 to 17.1. It's easy. You just type the stuff in. What do you mean? Okay. So I sort of danced around this earlier in the program because I didn't want to put the kibosh because I know a lot of people have actually done, have been able to go from 17 to 17.1 using the new mint update, um, using the, the updater uh, center, whatever we call it. Um, and uh, actually clicking on there and and uh, saying update to Rebecca and actually having that work. Well, for me, that is not the case. I have um, I have a laptop and I have a desktop. Uh, we're, I'm actually on the desktop right now. I'm still running 17 on here. I have a laptop that I have 17 on. Last night, I tried to go ahead and do the update. I went to open up the update center and there was the mint updater uh, update which is the one that comes first it takes you to right. 4 4.7.9 4. and mm-hmm. after that you can actually update so i went to do that and it wouldn't it actually got in this cycle i would click on the apply updates i'd click on the update i'd click on apply updates the window would go away it'd come back and it'd show me the same update again being available for me to update to so for some reason it would not update to to the mint update 479. So um, being as handy as I am, I went right out to the command line and I ran a, uh, a dist up, upgrade. And I had I was a little behind on some of my upgrades, so it, it up, updated a bunch of stuff, but it still stayed on 17. And it did update the mint updater, so it went to 4.7.9. So now I, I reboot the box, make sure it's a clean, I let it go through all its startup, I wait till the hard di- drive light dies down. I start the system update. It brings the box up, and as anybody who's done this update is aware, you have to click on two. You have to click on a link that takes you to the release notes and yep. uh, what's new, and those bring up web pages. So I would click on those, like, and that activates the continue button on the system update dialog box. Right. I'd get through. I'd get to the. Uh, I'm ready. I want to do this. I'd put a check in the box and I click go ahead and it would immediately go to, Oh, the update failed. Um, try again when, uh, uh, when you're connected to the internet. Well, I'm connected <laughs> to the internet because I've seen the two pages. That's the only message I get. Uh, there's no way to do this for, as far as I know from the command line, there was no way around it. So I started looking around, started Googling. And so it's like, Oh, well maybe I had changed my software sources because there's uh, here in the States, liquid web always shows up as the fastest repository for me. So I always end up using that one using the software sources tool. Well, I go ahead and I go and try and run software sources in order to change that back to the defaults. No, uh, no love. Software sources won't come up. Nothing happens. So I go to the command line and the, the command is actually software dash sources. And I run that and I get a, a, tr- a traceback error, which basically, really? yep, says that there, there's an error. Um, it gives me some, it's probably Python, gives me, uh, the yep. lines, line 17 in the, in the file. And it says it's, it's some, uh, dollar signs and some variables and stuff. And, uh, so I'm like, okay, I should look in the comments section to see if anybody's encountering something like this and I can Google this as well. Well, I start doing that and there's nothing out there like that as far as I can tell, but they basically say, Clem says to one person, well, why don't you come, why don't you come into the IRC and we'll see if we can help. So I'm like, okay, I'll go to Linux Mint help. That's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. So I go in the IRC 
and I mentioned that I'm having a problem having so getting software sources to run. I didn't actually mention the original problem, which is that I can't get the system update to work. <laughs> right. And um, a uh, very helpful person uh, addresses me almost immediately, which was great. Sometimes you have to sit on the IRC, um, but it was an individual, Rusty146, who um, was very helpful in terms of, you know, very, very prompt and was, you know, sort of asking me, okay, had me run INXI because they wanted to know what version of Mint I was running and stuff. Then they asked me if I had ever, if I did all my updating via Mint Updater. And I said, uh, no, actually, I use the command line quite a bit. I use, okay. uh, and they came back and said, it is not recommended that you use apt from the command line to update. It is recommended that you really? always use the Mint Updater because it has something. And I can't even remember what he said because I was sort of blown away that, really? that I was being told that it is not recommended that I up I, and I I said I've been using the mint I've been using app from the command line since version seven and I've never had an issue like this doing like a dist upgrade like this yeah you know I actually went in and I tried I used Synaptic and I um, I uninstalled the mint updater I uninstalled software sources uh, and the pieces there I reinstalled all that I kept getting the error so something's wrong something's borked on that box. And um, needless to say, after that, I was like, well, okay, I know that's sort of like when you call up um, uh, support and they say, well, have you have you applied Service Pack 3? And you're like, no. And they say, well, we're not going to help you till you applied Service Pack 3. <laughs> well, so basically, the fact that I had, it was, I was sort of done with, with getting help on that particular channel from that particular individual because I had used apt at some point or another in updating that box. And so... Um, I'm going to have to do a old school, um, you know, install. Fortunately, I have a separate home partition, but I'm going to have to reinstall my apps and stuff, and I'm going to have to do old, old school install. So do a nuke and pave. Nuke yeah. and pave. And uh, so I went over to my desktop here and uh, before the show, and this was about an hour before the show, so I figured I'd have time. Yeah. And once again, I could not, when I ran just a, a refresh the cache, uh, I actually went into software sources, changed it back to the default, which puts, points it to two locations overseas uh, from here in the States. I think they're both in the UK, but I'm not sure. Uh, and it would not, it could not pull down um, a couple of the, the updates. It would just, it just sat. And so I went to look at it from the command line to see what it was doing, and it was hung on something. So I went to update the Mint Updater, and it hung again. And finally, it pulled down the Mint Updater. But at that point, I was it was getting too close to the showtime for me to try and update the box. So the lesson in all of this, and the, and and my my wish is that is that we we get a uh, you shouldn't have to change your software sources back to to the defaults. And ma and mainly that was due to the timing of the packages hitting the package mirrors um, in in uh, in Clem's comments. Um, hmm. But yeah. you shouldn't you shouldn't have to it it. And it should it, it's it's still a little too difficult to make this happen, in, to my mind. And I think it needs to get cleaner. And I think my feeling is they'll be able to do this. But that's what I'm that's what I'm looking for. So that was my little grumbling there. I, yeah. I, I had the, my wishes that that becomes a simpler process for me personally. So this is all about me on this particular one. Well, and you know we talked. Um, I guess was it? Uh, I don't know if you were on the the podcast where we were talking about the updater and 
in the the complaints that have been around about the auto up or about the updater and and I made the the statement that you know mint they should just automatically transparently behind the scenes install anything that is a level one in the updater they should just install those and so I shouldn't have to go and do anything they should just install all that stuff because that's all security things and stuff that's known to be safe so you should just do it for me don't even ask me about it yeah I like that and you know that would work great except if it got you into a situation like this because if you get into a situation like that then you're just kind of stuck and you know the whole advantage I think of Mint over uh, and I think it was Joe that I was talking to and he he just didn't want to do this at all because he always does um, a disk. The only thing he ever does is a disk upgrade. He just installs everything that's there all the time, all the way down, all the, the kernels, the whole nine yards. He puts everything on. Um, and I tend not to do that. I tend to use the update manager. I take all the defaults, one to three, anything in there, I just tell it, go ahead and put it in. So for me, if it just went ahead and did that by itself, go for it. And I guess moving from 17 to 17.1, perhaps that's a bigger deal that you don't want to do automatically. But it should be the kind of thing that it would be safe that you would end up with a working system at the end if you just hit the if it just did it by itself while you weren't watching. Yeah. So anyway. Anyways. So our last one. Our last one is... Given is, the time of year. Given the time of year, given uh, uh, peace on earth and, and goodwill to all men, is for them there to be greater unity... In the FOSS world. In yes. the FOSS world. Yep. Why can't everybody just stop fighting? You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're all working in the same direction, in the same general direction. But yet, we get into flame wars over... System D and SysV and it, and you know all that stuff. All that stuff, and <laughs> and it, I I think this one is probably the most unrealistic. Yeah, this is the Canterbury Project all over again. It you is that, right. It is, but yes. the simplicity but, and ease of use of Arch. The, that's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, world peace. World peace, exactly. So this is our our wish for world peace. We're in favor of world peace, generally. Yeah, generally, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for our top ten Christmas wish list items. Um, if you had some that you have, definitely write in. Leave us a comment uh, either on the on the website or send us an email. And let us know what you think, and uh, we'll we'll talk about them next time. That being said, we're going to hop into a bunch of feedback. So we got a bunch of web comments, uh, particularly over our last episode. Dodo Bird wrote in to say that there is a PPA, PPA for LibreOffice 4.3.x, which works fine in Ubuntu and reportedly also in Linux Mint. Uh, I've been using this PPA since 12.04, and version conflicts are very rare. So Yeah, this came up because we were talking about the fact that um, if you look at the, the version of LibreOffice that's in um, 14.04, and therefore Mint 17, 
and compared to you know Ubuntu Mate fourteen ten, which is what what Joe was comparing, um, you know it's a it's a dot release behind, um, and so I saw just this past week on on all my seventeen boxes it pops up with a LibreOffice um, update. And I thought, oh, cool! Here we go. We're gonna get and install it now. It's just some Ubuntu thing that they pushed out, um, and it's still running um, four point. 2.7 I think it is that's uh, 2.6 2.7 uh, anyway um, so it still hadn't pushed out 4.3 but but I'm okay with that I, I, I like 4.2 I think I'm at 4.0 on on some of my older boxes but uh, anyway if you want to be out in the bleeding edge you can uh, go for it. the PPA yeah so Brian36 wrote in to say, Thanks, guys. Thought-provoking. Seems we're at the stage when Linux, despite the Debian politics, is now quite stable. Uh, I don't know about the year of desktop Linux, but I've been using Mint for years now. I settled on Mate as I like a straightforward, flexible desktop to get stuff done. I don't need rotating cubes. Uh, that was, was my editorial, yeah. Uh, I used the uh, onboard graphics card uh, on this uh, Acer M3920 Quad i5-2300. Just need the boring distros with essential updates. So I only select options 1 and 2, having deselected 3. I'm not bothering with Linux Mint 17 until I break it. Then I nuke and pave. Hmm. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So Will wrote in to talk about LibreOffice as well. He said, I can't speak to the, uh, any of the other packages that Joe brought up, but I personally regularly run LibreOffice 4.2.x. Anyway, because that is the, la is the stale version, what the Document Foundation calls the still version. The last time I tried 4.3 version, about two weeks ago, it had a nasty bug that caused it to crash whenever I tried to copy a table to the clipboard in Impress. This bug has been in the 4.3 branch, uh, since at least late August. This is, there is a closed bug report that claims the, to fix the problem, but it must not have made it into the release yet. Even when that bug is fixed in the release, I might still stay with the still version because the feature set is still relatively recent, and so far I have not had any problems with it, whereas I know already that it is possible for significant bugs to make it into the fresh version of LibreOffice. The table copying bug made LibreOffice unusable for the way that I use Impress. I just wanted, I just mentioned my experience to point out that there is some wisdom in staying with the stable package set. Too bad Joe isn't here to hear this. Yeah. Though, though maybe in Mint's case, it's just a coincidence that they have stayed on 4.2 instead of moving to 4.3 and not a conscious decision based on the program's stability. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, hmm. I don't, I don't know about that because I haven't used 4.3 for anything, so... Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mr. Sterling wrote in to say, uh, excellent show, guys. I was delaying upgrading from 17 to 17.1, hesitant to appoint my update manager to a new repository. Well, today, and this was uh, last week, uh, the Mint update came through an update manager for me, and I was able to use the edit menu upgrade to 17.1. It was very fast and smooth, and once I got past the annoying update window, it forces users to click on several links, each of which opens a web page detailing the release notes and new features. Yeah, I'm hoping they change that. Yeah. Um, only after opening these sites did the installer allow me to proceed. I've only been a Mint user since 16, uh, just 13 months, but I am sure Joe would go on a rant if he had to go through that annoying exercise. Uh, it didn't seem to be the Mint way of doing things. <laughs> I also appreciated Joe's reiteration of his opinion of System D. 
Uh, it was the first time I had heard him use Red Hat as the reference point for the possible future of Linux distros. I uh, don't know yet where I stand philosophically, but I'm closer to understanding what it, uh, what it is and the implications of it being the standard. Yes, indeed. Hmm. Yep. We also heard from Anthony Venable, who wrote in to say, I got so excited to hear about Mint 17.1. I ju had just upgraded to it on Tuesday, and I like the fact that I didn't have to nuke and pave to get a new version of Mint. Interesting, yeah. So, uh, Brad Alexander wrote in with uh, a goodly-sized email this time um, and said, uh, listening to you guys talk about System D and its mission creep, did you guys happen to listen to the latest Linux Action Show? No, I try not to do that. Uh, Chris interviewed Leonard, and indeed, as Joe predicted, Leonard has future plans to homogenize package management as well as all of the other stuff that Joe was talking about with System D taking over all of the system. And Leonard actually said as much. He said they want to own all of the glue layers between the kernel and the application layer. And while he said that it's good for security to have all of these glue layers managed by one group, that doesn't pass the sniff test, in my humble opinion, at least with this radical change to the basic operating system and in this age of universal surveillance. As some technology blogger called Swift on Security tweeted a few weeks ago, Mommy, what's Linux? That's what System D used to be called, Becky. So are the naysayers right, or are we just a group of buggy whip makers in the age of the automobile and our ideas are outdated as the System D supporters claim? Only the future will tell, and since the, future, the victors write the history books, whichever side wins will be right. Oh, and Rob, you said your choices will be to run Windows, OS X, Linux, or BSD. If the system guys get their way, the first three will be a monoculture. The BSDs are still a diverse collection of loosely associated distros, like Linux is now. Anyway, was a good discussion. The Leonard discussion has given me something to think about, but, in, but has in no way changed my mind. Worth a listen. Thanks. Good email. Mm. Yeah, good email. Well yeah, written. like that one. We heard yep. from uh, our own uh, Sergeant McBear, Jack Denahauer, um, on Google+, Plus, where he was emboldened by the review of Mint 17.1 in need of a challenge or suffering cranial vapor lock. And that's vapor lock with a U. Uh, I decided to upgrade. As it to, was intended to be written when. By the queen. By the queen. <laughs> by the queen. I decided to upgrade to 17.1 via the update manager. It worked. I then, checked, I then checked the kernel feature in the update manager and found that I was currently on 313.0-27. And that 313.0-37 was recommended with no regressions. Ah, uh, why not? I'm Yeah, what could go wrong? Come and on. downloaded said kernel and rebooted. So far, everything is operating normally. And uh, I think he is, yeah, he's still in the uh, in the chat. So if he's actually on the 17.1 box, that's pretty yeah, awesome. The, the patient seems responsive and um, re responds well to prodding and, and poking. So apparently that all worked right. Yeah. Awesome. So Jason Connerly wrote, uh, hello, everyone. My decade-old PC is on its last legs. I'm ready to buy a new desktop. I've looked through Ubuntu's desktop certified hardware recommendations, but would appreciate the community's input. Can anyone recommend a specific system for me? Although I currently run Lubuntu, I would like something that allows me to play with other distros such as Mint. My requirements are as follows. This will be a primary computer for school and other commitments, so it has to work every day. Linux compatibility is paramount. 
I don't want to have to swap out components out of the box for my sound to work. Uh, 3 comes with Windows pre-installed. I prefer 7 to 8. I plan to dual boot. Uh, number 4 is I know many consider computers disposable um, these days, but would prefer something that should support the next 5 years or so of Linux distro releases in terms of RAM, memory, etc. Below 600 bucks, uh, so that's everything. Um, cheaper is better. Uh, is upgradable so I can add things like an SSD or more RAM down the road. And 7 is available from Amazon.com special is a plus, especially since specific products can be pointed to in your responses. If you're able to take the time to explain why the system you recommend is a good choice, I would greatly appreciate it. I'm a newbie to all this and still learning about computers and Linux. Thank you in advance. And this is on the Google Plus page, so if you want to uh, respond to uh, to Jason and let him know what you think, by all means jump in there. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'd recommend you go over to the uh, Reglu program there and, and jump in and buy one of their notebooks. That's what I'd recommend. Yeah, but that's not going to be pre-installed with Windows, unfortunately. No, that's true. That's just yeah. going to have Linux on it, so you're going to need the other. Yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. say I would say that you know a lot of stuff is commodity. You can ask uh, people you know what they've had success with. Um, some people love Dells. Um, I personally have had a lot of um, Lenovo's and and enjoy those. I think they're good pieces of machinery. Uh, it's really going to be making sure Broadcom chipsets can be for your networking can be um, challenging. Uh, if you have a discrete, what's what's the Intel piece or the an NVIDIA piece that gives Optimus. you... Optimus. If, if Optimus. If it has Optimus, stuff, which yeah. means it has a, a discrete video card and then also has a video on, on the board and it goes between the two for power savings, that can be tricky for, um, for Linux sometimes. So I think... Intel graphics are are probably doing the best right now under. Um... Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the Nvidia stuff all works. Yeah, um, ATI is probably the most problematic. Yeah, stay away from ATI. Um, Nvidia will probably be fine. May give you better performance. The Intel graphics, um, I haven't had much experience with it. You know, it works fine on the Studio Box, but I don't do a lot of. Um, oddball sort of stuff on it yeah and, and everything you're going to basically everything you're going to buy now is going to be uefi so you're you're going to have probably have secure boot but all the linux distros now can handle that you may um you may have to do some some funky stuff uh on boot a couple of times to get it to to recognize after you've installed the the linux distro so that's not as big of a concern as it probably was about a year ago yeah, I'm I'm actually just about ready to do this on my my big Windows box to make to dual boot it with uh with Linux and and it's it's got a an early UEFI. It's running Windows 7, so it's not got it activated the same way it is on a Windows 8 box, but uh so I'll yeah, hopefully it it's really easy to do. Yeah. So again, if anybody else has advice for Jason, uh, it was out on the Google Plus page uh, in the Mintcast community. So uh, you can go out and let them know, uh, what, you know, point them in the right direction if you have some ideas there. Indeed, indeed. All right, so that's going to do it for feedback. We do have both a website and a tip, and these are both kind of tips, even though they both lead you to websites. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. So um, 
the the website that I'm going to point everybody at is um, so I have to tell a little bit of a story before I do that. Not too much one, just a little bit of one. But uh, at work, I've gotten uh, I've, I work on a Windows box all all day long, and so I've gotten quite um, embedded in the Microsoft OneNote world as a, a note taking application. Um, I've been trying to get rid of my you know carry around paper notebook. Uh, and so I've been trying to use OneNote to take notes and stuff, and I've gotten to where I've become quite attached to it. So I thought, okay, I need to look at, you know, it's got to be something like that for the Linux world. And so when you Google that, it doesn't take you very long to make your way to a program called Zim, Z-I-M. It's a desktop wiki, and I've used these things before. I used TiddlyWiki for a while, uh, and it's a nice little tool. It um, It's all HTML and so it's um, it's nice and platform compatible but it's just a little bit quirky to use um, and so Zim is a, a similar kind of deal and it looks really like um, th it's the kind of workflow that I had been getting used to in the the OneNote application um, it lets you keep an archive um, it um, lets you take notes during meetings it's really nice for doing that you can make um, different kinds of li lists. You can brainstorm stuff. It's really a nice, uh, powerful um, uh, tool for for just general note taking when you've got a laptop sitting in front of you. And so the website is www.zim-wiki.org. Um, so um, I would encourage you to go have a look at it. Uh, it's a, a neat little program. I I really. Uh, I can't wait to start making more use of it on my Windows or on my my Linux boxes, rather. So I'll point you over there to to, to have a look at it. Very cool. Yeah. And so our tip is one I came across. Um, you guys may have heard of Screen as an application that allows you to work from the command line and connect to multiple remote sessions and, and work them uh, in Screen. But there's a sort of competing uh, application out there called Tmux. And I came across a great Tmux primer that uh, I'm, we're going to link to in the show notes. And it basically gives you the ability to, uh, to they, in fact, I'll read you what, what the individual who wrote this wrote. He said, there are 4,257 tutorials on Tmux. That's a rough number that I just oh, made up. Exactly. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's a rough number that I just made up. This one is designed to take you from WTF Tmux to <laughs> OMG Tmux with extreme haste. I love that. Yeah. So, so again, Tmux, uh, so Tmux actually gives you the ability to uh, to maintain persistent persistent working states on remote servers and allowing you to detach and reattach at will. So, so we're gonna we're gonna you know I don't know how many of you do this. If maybe you have a server in your house and you can practice on it. Um, if you are looking for a job or actually working in the field, if you're working in the field of doing Linux administration. You already use Screen or Tmux or something like it. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking to to uh, get employment in that field, you're going to want to know how to use Screen or Tmux because this is what you're going to end up doing, and this is how you're going to connect to your stuff. So, now this is like uh, Biobu. I I used that for quite a while when I was was bouncing in and out of terminal sessions more. It's a similar kind of deal to that. I think th that's a uh, I want to say it's is that an Ubuntu thing sitting on top of screen? 
Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was something sitting on top of screen. It sits on top of screen. I've, I can't remember who. Um, I listened to the guy, one of the developers at uh, Texas Linux Fest three or four years ago. I've stopped using screen session or, or, yeah, screen sessions really much at all. But uh, but I might have to go look at at Tmux. Yep, it's, and we'll have the uh, a link to the tutorial in the show notes. Outstanding. All right, we got some podcast announcements. I'll let you take this first one. Okay, so I've been uh, pestering you guys for uh, quite a while now, uh, over the last uh, week or two anyway, about uh, uh, Ken Stark's Indiegogo campaign for Reglu. Now, uh, we should have really done this last podcast. Uh, if I'd been paying attention closer, I would have done it last podcast. But uh, c the campaign finishes up at midnight uh, today as we record this. So um, I guess what what, they're, what Ken is trying to do is he's trying to raise their operating funds for uh, this next year. And so he's, he's got a, they've got a goal up on, on Indiegogo of $9,000. And they're about 70% of the way there uh, today as we speak. Um, and so I, I tried the, a little bit of the, uh, the guilt stuff um, and, and said, okay, well, if you like uh, Mintcast, uh, you know, consider it like, uh, like it's a subscription fee Mintcast and go over and just drop a few dollars on the, the Indiegogo campaign. I would love to see them meet their goal. Um, it actually means that they get a higher percent. This is one of these um, flexible Indiegogo campaigns. So if they don't meet their target, then they get actually a bit less of the money. It's not a huge amount difference, but it is... Um, you know, a few hundred dollars difference in what they will get out of the campaign. So, uh, so if you're listening to the the released version of the podcast, that's probably too late. Uh, hopefully, you were able to get in and, and drop some money in there. If you happen to be in the IRC, then y'all just get out of the IRC and get on over to the Indiegogo page and and put some money on Reglu's uh, campaigns. See if we can get them all the way to their uh, uh, to their goal. And if, in fact, you hear this and it's the campaign's over and this is a, a cause that resonates with you, you can get in touch with them, and I'm sure they'd accept your donation. They will, and you can actually donate right on their, their webpage. If you go to www.reglue.org, uh, you can um, write on that on the webpage there. There's a, uh, an easy place where where you can, can dump a few, few bucks into the coffers. Uh, you know, you read through the Indiegogo story, and it's like, okay, where do I sign up to give? And so I made a donation. Then I read through the story again. I thought, okay, I'm, I need to give some more money then. Um, and I didn't. But uh, it's that kind of a story. It it really is uh, an amazing organization that Ken has has set up. And and you know they really really are doing a good thing. Uh, these guys. Yep. All right, so a couple other podcast announcements. Uh, we've got some upcoming expos. Um, one of them would be Scale 13X. Uh, the 13th Annual Southern California Linux Expo is February 19th through 22nd at the Hilton Los Angeles Airport. Uh, so that's a couple months off. We have the Kansas Linux Fest 
in Lawrence, Kansas, and that's going to be in March, March 21st and 22nd. And then the LinuxCon North America, and there'll be a few between uh, Kansas and LinuxCon, but we wanted to, LinuxCon North America is the big one. That's going to be at the Sheraton in down, lovely downtown Seattle, August 17th through 19th. So uh, get your tickets now. I would expect that the Texas Linux Fest is going to be in there sometime too. Yeah. Right? Yep. We sure we where that is. Yeah. We'll fill these out. We've got the uh, Linux Fest Northwest will be typically is in April. Uh, obviously, we've got um, uh, self the Southeast Linux Fest uh, down in Charlotte. That'll be coming in. Uh, oh, I think that's in May. So yeah. we'll have we'll have those uh, we'll we'll get those into the announcements. Have to do uh, some more digging. Yeah, a couple of uh, acknowledgments. Uh, Kwisher has uh, been great in providing the Piecaster, the Raspberry Pi that streams each episode. Yay! So thanks again to Kwisher and all his uh, service here. Uh, Johnny uh, John Newstetter for the Mumble server that we use to communicate and uh, do the live stream here, and so Rob and I can hear each other. Uh, be a, would be a much different podcast without that. Yeah, that would be a real challenge, yeah. And then once again, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. So we want to say thank you to all those. Uh, we are actually going to be back here two weeks from now. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh oh! Is there well, something? I don't know whether I can make it or not in two weeks. I, oh, things well. are in flux, so we might be back in a couple of weeks, or it might be uh, in January. But uh, well, we'd love to put a wrap on 2014. It uh, would we'll be nice, we'll yeah. see what happens. Keep your eye on the Linux Mint page uh, and the Google Plus community as well uh, for the timing of our next episode. Indeed, indeed. So, thanks for listening, everybody. Have happy holidays and. Uh, uh, enjoy your time with your families and friends. Indeed. See you next time, guys. This has been another episode of Mintcast. The show notes for this episode are at www.mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org or leave voicemail at plus one eight three two five one four two two seven eight. That's 832-514-CAST. You can find more information on Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco and Oscar for the podcast music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Mintcast.